Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, or good morning, or good day, or whenever you hear this, today, tomorrow, uh, next year, this is Dr. Simon, and my show, as always, is The Stories We Live By, and tonight I have uh, a special show on uh, climate change, and I have a guest and my co-host tonight, uh, let me introduce him and give you a little bit of information about him, because he knows much more about the scientific aspects of the topic than I do, uh, Dr. Elliot Weinstock, uh, who got his bachelor's degree from Brandeis University and his Ph.D. in physical chemistry from Brown University. He was also a postdoctoral fellow from Columbia University, assistant professor of chemistry at UMass Boston, and from 1978 to 2009, was the staff scientist and scientific program manager, Harvard University Department of Chemistry. And he has done an enormous amount of research on the issue of climate change and global warming. And welcome, Dr. Weinstock. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Simon. Uh, so I, let's uh, do something. I'll be it. I'll be Larry and you'll be Elliot. Yeah. I that think that would be good. better. Okay. That much better. Okay. So let's talk well, about. First of all, here. I'm glad you're here. And uh, it's sometimes when I do a show, it gets very lonely talking into the air all by myself. But that's been a big part of my life anyway. Um, <laughs> when we talk about climate change and global warming, how do we differentiate the two? Well, um, the term global warming uh, basically is, is most simply related to the actual um, chemistry and physics going on in the atmosphere which causes the Earth to warm. So when one talks about a degree of global warming, one is talking about an average global surface temperature. Uh, that, are, that can be measured by various types of instruments, both instruments from satellites and instruments on the ground. And the, what happens in the atmosphere is we have an energy balance going on between the energy coming into the Earth's atmosphere from the sun and the energy going out. And most of the energy coming in to the atmosphere from the sun is an ultraviolet invisible radiation. And some of that radiation, especially the ultraviolet, is absorbed in the atmosphere uh, or reaches the earth and the ocean surfaces and absorbed there. Some of it's reflected back. In the atmosphere, greenhouse gases, the most notable of which is carbon dioxide, but methane is also a significant greenhouse gas, absorb infrared radiation that is reflected back from the Earth's surface on the, or the ocean surface. And as the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere increase, more and more of that infrared radiation is absorbed and the Earth's atmosphere and the temperature of the surface in gradually increases. Uh -huh. um, climate change, climate change, basically encompasses that the Earth's warming, but also includes other secondary f effects. For example, the uh, sea level rise that comes about because of the increase in the Earth's temperature, average global temperature, or other other aspects have to do with, say, coral reefs that are being acidified in the ocean because as the ocean warms, it can, it can, in fact, it does absorb carbon dioxide, which is, acidifies the ocean. So we have a problem with coral reefs and it and impacts the whole food chain in the, in the ocean. And what do you there mean are various the, How does it impact the food chain? Well, ba basically because those coral reefs are basically made up of living organisms. And those living organisms are fed, up, fed on by other organisms, which eventually, eventually go up the food chain to where fish are eating them. So that whole, the whole, the health of the whole of the ocean system is in danger because of this. Um, 
The uh, additionally, there are because of the increase in warming, we have the melting of glaciers, have melting of the Antarctic and Greenland ice caps, which also contribute to further to sea level rise, and weather patterns are changing, um, as has been happening and is. Pre- predicted to continue to happen, there'll be more areas with droughts or heavy storms. There'll be basically uh, changes that that impact weather worldwide, more significant storms, for example. And uh, quite honestly, you can't specifically relate the intensity or existence of one bad storm, say Hurricane Sandy, for example. You know, statistically, there are more significant storms occurring now. But to say this one particular storm is caused by uh, climate change is, is, is an exaggeration in the same way that if one were to say we had a very severe winter in the Northeast last year or last winter and the winter before, how can we have climate change or global warming? These are it's the statistical events uh, that are related to climate change. Climate is different than weather. Weather is what's going on on a daily basis in individual areas. Climate really it, it refers to the average situation globally as a function of time. And it's, it's and, much and more. Let's, say, let's take the idea of the temperature, the rise in temperature. Uh, we here in, in Florida have had the warmest November and now December on record more warmer right. even than last year, which had broken the record. How do we know this is not just weather? Because a lot of the people who uh, have trouble believing that there's really a significant change going mm-hmm. on will say weather is always, we've always had drought, we've always had hot summers and cold winters. How do we know that this, this pattern is existing? Basically, when you talk about a region like South Florida and a given year, for example, it as you are, I'm sure, aware, since you're talking about the warm weather here in November, that the whole country has been very warm this past fall into winter. And and that's due to uh, one of these years that's called an El Nino year, which has to do with the circulation of the air in the tropical Pacific and how it's changed mm-hmm. things. And so there's a lot more storms coming in now into the northwest and northern California, but much of the country has been very warm. And in fact, I don't think the last I heard, and this was a you know a few days ago, the the uh, weatherman said, you know, there's no place on, in the mainland now that has any any natural snow. They're man- making snow in various ski regions. There's no snow on the ground that occurred naturally. So that is that is weather. However, we're, we have, uh, and I don't quite honestly remember the exact statistics, but two, 2015 is apparently um, scheduled to be, I mean, there are obviously a few weeks left, the warmest year on record that this planet has had. And 2014 was next to that is the, is the warmest uh, year on record. And something like 10 or 11 out of the last 15 years are the warmest 10 or 11 years this planet has experienced within, you know, recent times since we've making, been making measurements, certainly, but, you know. Through this so there's clearly a pattern longer. in the rise of temperature worldwide. Well, in fact, in fact, it, this is, it's, a, it's a very interesting discussion. Um, if you, and of course, because we're having this as a conversation, I'm not giving a talk with a slide projection. I can't show you the graph, but I have the graph in front of me of the temperature, average global temperature, from 1880 to basically the present. And what it shows is starting around 1930, 1940, you know, when you sort of say, okay, the start of the Industrial Revolution roughly, the temperature is going up. Now, the global average temperature uh, has gone up from, say, 1960 to 2000 by about 0.7 degrees. Uh, You know, and if you want to start it, at the year 1930, it's gone up about a degree. And uh, it's, it's not a smooth, straight line because there are various factors on an annual basis that affect the average global temperature. But when you do the, if you look at the plot, you can see that. 
And that's why when people have been talking about this uh, Paris Accord that was just signed by roughly 195 nations, um, they talk about the goal of of limiting the average increase in global temperature from that what they're calling the 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 sort of minimum or before the start of the industrial revolution is would be two degrees centigrade and it's already gone up since then by one degree centigrade. So that was that's the ultimate goal that people have set is what they thought was sort of would keep the the you know the the world safe. That, that we'll be able to control the degree of sea level rise, the weather extremes won't be as bad as they could be. <clears throat> they have sort of revised that to say that they really would like to keep it to 1.5 degrees C, but you know initially it, two degrees C was centigrade, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Naturally, in the United States, we use the Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit yeah. temperature scale, and so that's. Two degrees centigrade equals three point six degrees Fahrenheit. So that's what they wanted to limit to limit the average global temperature increase by. Um, but when you look at that plot, you can see that clearly things are going up. Now, what's what's interesting about this is there are still in this mostly in this country, but not only in this country, people who deny either deny that climate change is happening or deny or at least a very express skepticism that it's man caused by mankind. And if you look at the internet and try to find out how these skeptics are justifying their skepticism, then you will see that basically they will cherry pick, uh, pick a range from say 19, uh, roughly 1998 to 2014 and say, look, we've had 16 years of no temperature change. And when you're talking about climate, it's not relevant to talk about short periods of time. Right, just right. Because there's enough statistical variation in what's going on in the climate that these variations can mask any trend that's taking place. You have to have a much longer temperature range right. to look at. Elliot, um, your work specifically was in measuring CO2, carbon dioxide? No, my work, my work specifically, well, let me, let me back up a little bit from my specific work and first talk about the work that was going on in the group I was a part of at Harvard for 30 years. Um, We designed uh, and built instruments, which we put on first on balloon payloads, helium balloon payloads that went up into the stratosphere up to around 130, 140,000 feet, and then transitioned to put these instruments on uh, NASA research aircraft. Um, They were on what was called the uh, NASA ER-2. The NASA ER-2 is actually a converted um, U-2 aircraft. If you remember the uh, spy planes that the United States used to use, they were U-2s. And what they did was they extended the wingspan on these planes for the the research application. Actually, we also did did research on what was used to be a B-2 bomber. It was actually a Canberra bomber, I think it was. And that was, we also used those for research uh, platforms. They didn't go up quite as high as the U2s, but they could carry much more equipment. They were much because it was a bomber. They had they had uh, a great deal of capacity for weight and a lot more instrumentation. So and what did they measure? What did the tools measure? Uh, okay, the instruments I'm getting measure. Into that. Sorry if I'm a little slow on this. Okay, basically, what we the most critical things we're measuring were, and this was in our early days. Uh, on the aircraft when we were trying to understand the chemistry behind ozone depletion. We had measurements of ozone and water vapor and uh, what are called certain free radicals, which were indication of the chemistry going on, which would deplete ozone in the atmosphere. So one of the most important of the compounds was a compound called chlorine monoxide, one chlorine atom bonded to one oxygen atom, very unstable molecule, but this 
molecule was indicative of ozone being depleted because when the fluorocarbons, which were the, found to be the cause of ozone depletion in the stratosphere, got up into the, into the stratosphere, in the upper atmosphere, the high-energy ultraviolet light from the sun would break them apart and give off a chlorine atom. The chlorine atom then would react with ozone, removing an ozone molecule, and form that CLO molecule, which we measured with one of our instruments. Uh-huh. And if you think about how a catalytic converter works, when you know you have want to remove nitric oxide from the emissions of your car, there's a metal surface which on which the um, nitric oxide reacts with the metal and just gets eaten up and, and the metal doesn't get used up. Well, in, this, in the atmosphere, there was what's called a catalytic cycle, which basically meant that the chlorine atom served as a catalyst, and it just kept on reacting with ozone, and you'd have a series of reactions which would form CLO, CLO and then come back, and you'd get another chlorine atom out after another reaction with oxygen, and you'd basically remove another ozone. So a, in a, a one chlorine atom could remove very many ozone molecules from the atmosphere. So right. we had to measure chlorine monoxide, water vapor, because water vapor was a critical component in the chemistry in the atmosphere, <coughs> excuse me, and the, and the chlorine monoxide it's When did you move itself. on to the carbon dioxide then? Well, because I think we, for, for right now, well, if we're going to be talking about climate change and global warming, it's the CO2 and the sure. methane that Let, we're concerned well, about, yes? Okay. Now, we, our group worked with another group in Harvard who, that measured carbon, carbon dioxide. However, the, what's called probably one of the most amazing data sets for making measurements in the atmosphere was actually made on the top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii. And that, that, that is where the CO2 uh, climate record exists. And if you, um, uh, if you were to go on, any, on Google and, 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 and Google CO2 climate record, this is what come up. There's, an, there's a plot of atmospheric carbon dioxide at Mauna Loa as a function of time. And that exists it's been in existence since about 1959 through uh-huh. the present. It continues now. Uh, it's run actually by the Scripps Institute of Oceanography uh, in outside of San Diego in, in La Jolla, California. Uh, but th- that record is what people use when they want to compare growth in temp- growth in in temperature, global temperature versus carbon dioxide to see how they track. Okay um, and but and that's the that's the that's the record which is you know has direct measurement of carbon dioxide, um, and, but of course that's only been since 1958 or 59. It turns out if you go into the literature, uh, into the scientific literature to um, to see measurement of carbon dioxide as a function of time, you will find graphs of that that go back 400,000 years. And you say, well, wait a minute, now you scientists haven't been around anywhere near 400,000 years. Yeah, wait a minute, Elliot, how can we measure 400,000 years worth of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Well, there's amazing ways that have been developed to do this. The most common one for doing that are called, um, basically, um, they drill ice cores in Arctic and Antarctic ice sheets. And believe it or not, those ice cores go down miles and so they they drill them and they pull them up and they slice them up and there's a correlation between the depth of the ice core and the year in which that ice um, condensed on the and froze on the surface and when the ice freezes on the surface it has air bubbles in it and you can actually when you look at these ice cores you can see the seasonality from you so so you can easily delineate from one year to the next. And there are other ways to check that, actually, by measuring, and this is getting a little more complicated, but by, by measuring the isotope ratio of the isotopes of, say, carbon or oxygen, and they, especially carbon will tell you how old these samples are. 
Right. Um, but basically, they tend to take the ice bubbles and they measure the carbon dioxide concentration in those ice bubbles, and then you have a plot as a function of time of carbon dioxide going back hundreds of thousands of years, which is and so what? What do we see incredible. in the long term rise of carbon dioxide? From well, the past we into see, the present. Well, what we see here is a great deal of variability in, in carbon dioxide. You also, in similar, based on those same measurements, actually based on isotope ratios, you get a measurement of the temperature at which of, of the uh, atmosphere at that time. And when you plot CO2 concentration and global temperature, you see a very clear correlation as carbon dioxide goes up temperature goes up. As carbon dioxide goes down, temperature goes down. Now, to uh -huh. be perfectly honest, to be perfectly honest, when you look there, you know, you're, you're looking at a plot, which is, say, a, a foot long on your piece of paper, and this corresponds to 400,000 years. But if you blow it up very carefully, you can see, aha, sometimes carbon dioxide leads the temperature. That is, the carbon dioxide goes up, and then the temperature goes up. But other times, the temperature leads to carbon dioxide, which has been, you know, I won't say it's a bone of contention, but it's, it's been something which climates, you know, global warming skeptics have argued about and said, well, so what? If, if the temperature goes up, then the CO2 goes up. You're not proving anything. But quite frankly, and I'm not a modeler, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert in that aspect of things. My expertise was much more in, in building instruments, making measurements, and analyzing the data. But basically, this is not, in no way does this disprove anything. It's clearly understood why carbon dioxide basically follows temperature. And you can understand it if you think about the fact that you have an ocean, and the ocean is full of carbon dioxide. As the temperature goes up, more and more at the temperature of the ocean will go up, and more CO2 will come out of the ocean. So it's And what do we see now ways. happening in, in the last what, now we see 30, 40 years? Correlation we see an exact correlation between uh, carbon dioxide and temperature. So basically carbon dioxide has gone up from about 300 or 300 about 300 parts per million from no from about 300 parts per million to about 400 parts per million and we've had a, a rise of about 0.7 or 8 degrees in the earth's temperature. So and and we are also in uncharted territories. If you look at the CO2 concentration, you see that in the last 400,000 years, we haven't had carbon dioxide concentrations like we have right now. I'm just going to get a drink of water. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Just like Rubio. <clears throat> so um, <laughs> glad somebody laughed. Uh, anyway, so uh, one of the problems here is that there's basically a lag that is carbon dioxide has a very long life in the uh, lifetime in the atmosphere of hundreds of years and the a lot of it initially that goes into the ocean will if if we stop if we sort of try to hold back on it putting carbon dioxide if for example the paris accord is effective we'll still be getting what will happen is the the equilibrium between the CO2 in the atmosphere and CO2 in the ocean has been already been established. And as you, if you start reducing CO2 in the atmosphere, more is going to come out from the from the ocean. So it's going to take longer to, to heal the atmosphere. In any event, um, we are. But the now issue is carbon. It's it's really the carbon footprint in the world that the, the well, Paris Accord is trying to deal with. Footprint. Right, it's the, called the carbon footprint because it's basically when you're burning a fossil fuel, the carbon combines with oxygen to form carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is the most critical greenhouse gas at right. this point, based on the right. amount we're putting in. So and that's the why Paris it's called Accord, And the Paris Accord really is motivated by an alarm about the oh, amount about of carbon dioxide that's increasing in the atmosphere, and the increase in the greenhouse effect and the increase in temperature generating a serious a kind of climate change. Because if this, you know, you say, well, okay, what's, six, what's a degree or two between friends? But we're talking it, it, about... Fact, a, it's yeah, exactly right. Because what you're saying is true. If you say, I live in Florida, and I live here, and the average temperature is... 
and let's talk in Fahrenheit because we, we understand Fahrenheit a little better in this country. And the average temperature in Florida is probably around 75 degrees year-round. So suppose it were 78 instead of 75. Right. So what's the big deal? The problem, there are a number of problems. As I said before, the, the first order effect is the average global temperature change. Number one, that doesn't mean that everything is going to go up exactly the same everywhere. Um, it doesn't mean that we're going to have the same amount of rainfall we always have had. It doesn't mean we're going to have um, the same number of storms. The, the, the predictions are that as the earth warms, uh, among other things, more water vapor can be, be held in the atmosphere. And there's a strong impact on weather patterns that are predicted. It's predicted that some areas will have drought, much more drought. Some areas will have much more rain. There'll be more excessive storms. Um, and, you know, the, it's for the average person. And in fact, for me, I can't look at a, I can't, I cannot look at this model that, that, that actually gives that information and say, oh yeah, I understand why that happens. It's, there are people whose, whose main function is to understand, uh, put in all the physical parameters that, that are involved in, in predicting future weather patterns and comes, they come out with this information. Uh, in general, what they do is look back for the last X number of years and, and, and sort of fine-tune their models within the, within the context of having the proper physics and chemistry and aerodynamics and, and see how well they do in the past. So ultimately what we are going to have is um, places that used to be are, are currently inhabitable look much less inhabitable. And they're talking about, again, it depends how quickly we change this, where you have areas, say, which have very hot and dry climates now, tempered, well, those areas might easily become un, uninhabitable to human beings because well, the temperature rise will be just too Let great. me interrupt for a second. This summer, somewhere in Iran, <clears throat> the temperature rose to 167 degrees. And it was estimated yeah. that anybody who would be outside for more than four hours would die. Yeah. I mean, we've had, I mean, I can't speak to many events, but I remember in Europe, not too many years ago, they had a really bad heat wave. And of course, we're, we're, we're all, maybe not all, but many of us are living with air-conditioned houses and we don't have a problem if it gets too hot, but a lot of people don't have air conditioning. And, I mean, there are a lot of people that don't have running water either. Uh, That's but true. Ultimately, uh, ultimately, you know, just because some people can adapt to certain weather changes doesn't mean everybody can. Um, but in terms of a South Florida resident, and here we are in Boynton Beach, which, which basically has uh, an average uh, height above sea level of probably around 25 feet, which isn't a whole lot, but, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat pretty safe. You go down to, for example, Miami, and... You say, okay, now you're in South South Florida, and you're talking about somewhere between, say, two and six feet of sea level, height above sea level. You're talking about a city that has now budgeted $350 million to buy pumps, and the installations have started to pump water out of the city because they are getting flooded on a regular basis. On a regular basis, and yeah. On a regular basis. And um, if you look at the models that are now dealing with the question of how will average sea level rise as a function of time as the Earth warms, you're dealing with the predictions and I'm, I will say the conservative prediction based on what's been written uh, by a group of scientists who every five years publish a one-and-a-half-inch-thick book of papers describing uh, global change and 
basically their prediction, which is based on the way they work, they have to reach the consensus, have a few thousand scientists reach consensus on this. So it's very conservative. And their conservative estimate is if we don't do something very quickly, we're going to have average sea level rise on the order of three to five or three to six feet by the end of the century. Uh, now, the problem with this consensus is and that and this last issue came out in 2014. It's, that was the fifth, fifth one of, of these um, climate change reports. And the first one was in 1988. They do them roughly every four or five years. And what what this does not take into account something that has just started to be better understood, which is the speed at which the Antarctic ice sheet and the Greenland ice sheet are melting. And the concern by a lot of people, and their papers being published now, is this, this sort of three to six feet could, with some pro reasonable probability, because it's, there's still larger uncertainties, could be 10 feet by the end of the century. So we live, we're fine. We're living here with, say, 25 feet above sea level. I mean, I know our, our foundation is 21 feet above sea level. But if you go down to southern Florida, which is Dade, Dade County, which includes Miami, and then there's Monroe County, and then there's Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is, you, you have regions which are six feet or less. I mean, I think Monroe and Dade are probably four feet or less you go into browsing right, so there's a possibility here that at not too many years in the future south florida could be literally underwater um in fact yes and when we let's say that probably roughly on the order of a quarter to a third of of, of florida now you know but basically a significant amount and when you think about it i'm just talking about south florida because we live here if you were to look globally at what goes on, I mean, there are projections that uh, I just had it written here somewhere that basically, and again, you, you, you can take this with a certain grain of salt because I, I can't speak to the accuracy of this estimate, but a research organization called Climate Central found recently that 280 million people who live on land that could be eventually be submerged by the sea if warming were allowed to reach the higher number, which is this, you know, above, you know, two degrees right. centigrade. And if we can keep it within the target, then that can be reduced by half, which is 137 million people, more than half. So, you know, worldwide, this is a significant problem. If you go to New York City, um, we do know that there was a storm not too long ago which flooded the subway system in New York City. But both, um, you know, if we're dealing with anywhere near 10 feet of sea level rise, the, the whole infrastructure of cities like Boston and New York will completely be wiped out by the right. increase and, in sea and, level. And, you know, just, I know we're being very cautious because we want to be cautious in our predictions. But eventually, if, if this kind of flooding and this kind of, of drought areas continue, you're really talking about disruption of food supplies, living areas, and vast migrations of people. Uh, and I don't think we need to get into that, because what happened in Syria, what's happened in the Middle East, uh, many people that I've read about say that a four-year-long drought there is one of the reasons, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, that this area uh, has become so destabilized. That, and you have, we see now what's happening when you start having large numbers of people who have to migrate from one place to another, who are hungry and desperate and eventually are going to be angry and eventually are going to want to take what other people have uh, because they're starving and because they see themselves and they are as victims. So we're really talking about the potential for a global disruption in not that many years from now, um, I think about my grandchildren. Uh, let's say the youngest is, is 12. If he lives to be uh, 80 years old, uh, if we push that 70 years from now, we're talking about towards the end of the century. A a a absolutely. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt that 
you know, when people criticize various leaders of, of countries, including our own, about how important this problem is to be, to be addressed, um, they, they are, you know, they are in, to some extent legitimately certainly concerned about the problems we are having today in this country and in the world and the threat mm-hmm. of terrorism. I mean, when I, I, I again, this is, you know, I, I start sort of deviating from my field of expertise, which is the science, which I'd sort of like to get back to at some level soon. We will, just we a, will. Just, just, just but I think a, we have to anchor point. ourselves in the idea sure. that this really is a, a very, very serious problem that we're confronting uh, that's global, that's worldwide, and that it's sort of we're, we're, uh, we're, we're looking at little pieces of detail. I mean, I was watching the, the Republican um, uh, debate, and there's no mention of, of climate change, no mention. Well, I went to a Democratic meeting, and young people were being interviewed by a really uh, lovely uh, uh, state congressman about what their concerns were for the future. And he yeah. listed the topics. And I went up afterwards and I said, how is it that global warming, that climate change isn't one of the topics that you yeah. raised? And the kids that were sitting there, the young people who were from SAU and, and from other uh, universities, mm-hmm. wonderful young sure. people, bright, they said, well, we're all terrified by this, but nobody talks about it. Exactly. It's almost well, as if we think- don't want to understand and see what we have to confront uh, and what we have to deal with. I think that, you know, the United States seems to be unique when it comes to this pretty much. But also, you know, when you think about terrorism and the impact of terrorism, somehow when people see somebody with a gun who has gone around shooting, you know, 10 or 15 people, and not to, not to, not to deny the horrific nature of that, but the the whole country reacts so strongly to that, maybe doesn't do a whole lot, but the fear is generated. And to a certain degree, the fear is generated or the concern is generated when we have a big storm that causes a lot of damage and a a lot of, of, in fact, you know, deaths, et cetera. I mean, look at what happened in you know, in New Orleans, but yet people seem, cannot seem to connect those dots from right. dealing with the climate to the impact of storms uh, and the potential impact of what is predicted by scientists. And part of the problem is there's a lot of noise out there about what, what you know, the validity of climate change. And the average person either doesn't know who to trust when it comes to the the whole climate change issue or they trust who they somehow trust politically based on some of their other views. So they get their information from, I won't even call it secondhand sources, and they're certainly not reliable sources. They're sources that have a political or economic agenda. And the information they put out on this subject is meant to influence people's views on the importance of this issue. And, and one, of the reasons, one of the reasons you and I are talking about this is that there has to be the same intensity of stoking of, of anxiety and giving direction about climate change than there are about terrorist attacks. Because I, a, lot more people are gonna, a lot more people are going to die and suffer terribly from these major storms, more people were hurt permanently by Katrina coming over into the south of, of, of you know, Mississippi and New Orleans sure. than were by all the terrorist attacks put together. But let's not get, in, you know what I tell you, let's not get into the political agendas of the people who are stoking one fear and not even talking about or denying that there's anything uh, that we have to deal, that there's anything afoot. Uh, you and I know it's probably economic, but what I want to talk to you about now and have you respond to uh, is, for example, uh, Lamar Smith, 
who's a representative from Texas, a Republican, and he's mm-hmm. the chairhouse committee on science, space, and technology. Is mm-hmm. trying to issue subpoenas to talk to to bring in the people who did some mm-hmm. of this research, right. actually suggesting that they cheated that they made right. this up. Every once in a while I hear there's a hoax. And what I want you to talk mm-hmm. about, because we talked about this, right. is it's, it's what exactly. is the, the, the scientific process? Okay, I'm, this is what, what I exactly do we do? What because I it's easy to, to create a hoax, but right. I've never seen a hoax stand up to scientific scrutiny. You can have all kinds of hoaxes, but even when a scientist creates a hoax, it falls apart very rapidly. Why? Um, well, in general, uh, first of all, I, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of scientists there are worldwide. But when the, the way the field works is, and there's only one way it works, you are doing research on a subject. If you, there's a body of research literature in, in journals, and these journals basically date back to somewhere in the, I will, I'll throw out a number like 1750, you know, in the 18th century. Uh, I don't read, you know, and there were journals, mostly they started out in Great Britain, and they were, and, and built from there. The United States has a number of scientific journals. The, the European countries have scientific journals. They have varying degrees of stature. But everything, if you ask the question, what's the basis for all the, all the uh, predictions about climate change, they are all based on the body of peer-reviewed literature. Now, what does explain that, that mean, peer-reviewed yeah, literature? Explain that. Well, you, you, you are sitting in your laboratory or at your computer, however you are, and you're doing research. And, at some, and for the most part, research is supported by government agencies, nonprofit agencies, etc. So you, you are being paid uh, or given a certain amount of money to do research based on a proposal you've written. You, you describe a problem that exists, something we don't understand. You describe at some length how you're going to try to solve this problem. You take this proposal and you send it to granting agencies, National Science Foundation, NASA, uh, the NIH, if it's a medical thing, you get back, you get back support, and you do the research. The goal of this research is to understand something well enough and to learn something, which then you write a paper on, which you submit to a journal. The journal takes that paper and says, "Okay, this is, this is the field of we we publish papers in a certain you know field of science. We will send your paper to two or three at least." Referees who read your paper, criticize it, critique it, etc., comment, send it back to the journal. The journal sends it back to you. You respond to these criticisms. You send it back to the, generally they then go back to the referees. And when all is said and done, this paper is either accepted or rejected. If it's accepted, it's part of, it becomes part of the peer-reviewed literature. And it's accepted as being true unless sometime later on somebody learns something new which is in dispute of this and that published that paper can get published and then there's sort of a, a consensus is developed so when you're talking about the field of climate change and what's understood now is to be the truth in terms of what's happening in in, in global warming and all these other aspects of the climate change uh, issue all the information that you're getting from this scientist is based on the peer-reviewed literature, all these different, all these different papers that, it, that are published. And if there were to be a hoax, you know, you, now you're talking about globally um, tens of thousands, well, thousands of scientists who are contributing to, to our understanding of this field. And the idea that, you know, when, when one decides to go into science, I mean, you know, this is not, you know, People do not choose a scientific career because they want to get rich. People choose a scientific career because they really like solving problems. They really like figuring out what's going on in something and then 
teaching people about it or telling people about it and describing it and, and to improve our understanding of the world around us, the physical world, the chemical world, the biological world, etc. And the idea is to somebody who was a, has spent his whole adult life as a scientist, the idea that there are people out there, whether it's in the media or wherever, it, who are claiming this is a hoax is, is so insulting. You know, I I was recently at a a gathering in our own community at dinner, et cetera. We were sitting around tables and talking to somebody, and somehow or other somebody brought up the topic, and I started talking. I started saying something, and this guy, who I know, but we never had any conversation like this, said, that's just malarkey. It's a hoax. They're all doing it so they can make money. And I tell you, I'm not a violent person. I I had to walk away. I had to walk away. I I was so incensed. Because basically, you know, it, it, you know, do you go tell somebody, you know, your whole life you're just a phony? Basically, that's what it amounts to. And I, what I don't understand is, is if you have a medical problem and you need a solution, you need, you know, you need, you, you go to a doctor. And if the, you go to a first, you might go to a general practitioner or family doctor, whatever you want to call it. Eventually, if it's a serious enough problem, you go to a specialist, and you listen to the specialist. Now, right. you might have a plumber next door who's had a similar problem, and the plumber tells you, oh, I know what's wrong with you. This is what you do. But generally speaking, you don't listen to the plumber. Generally speaking, you listen to the doctor. And sometimes, because it's a serious enough, serious enough problem, you might get a second opinion or a third opinion right. because you want to make sure. Well, th- this whole climate change issue and what's coming, what's being predicted is going to happen if we don't change our ways in terms of burning fossil fuels in this com- country. It's based on not one scientist, not two, not three, but thousands who have gotten together. And you hear the number, well, 90%, 97% of the scientists agree. I frankly think that's a conservative number. Because, you know, the, the, basically the people in science who don't agree with this are either either have their head in the sand or they are being somehow or other um, acting as effectively agents of the fossil fuel industry because right. the evidence is so overwhelming. Uh, so, well, make but, one more you know, point about the research. Yeah. When you publish a paper and it goes out mm-hmm. to be reviewed and then will mm-hmm. be critiqued by other scientists, these people yeah. are not your friends. They're not coming on with, oh, gee, let's really do a job and support this individual's research. Isn't well, the basic you know, attitude, because I was trained as a scientist, I haven't done much research, yeah. but basically right. um, they're there to they, tear it apart they, to make sure that the facts, the observable facts and the theories that explain it are the best available. Well, you're being involved with psychology you you understand uh, a lot about a person's ego, so you are somewhat of it, say, an expert in your field, and somebody else is also somewhat an expert. Writes a paper, and you are asked to referee. Now you know full well that if when you're reading that paper, you're saying to yourself, "Well, he's a smart guy, and this is good," but. Gosh darn it, I at least have to find something reasonable to criticize. And if there's something wrong, I'm certainly going to definitely criticize it because it's my reputation is at stake here. If, I, right. if I'm reading this paper and I let things go that are you know, sloppy or not, well, you know, not right, I'm, right, I'm listed as a referee. My name goes to pot along with that guy or woman. That's right. So basically, it, it's really important. The, the whole system, nothing's foolproof, and 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 you know there are there are retractions every once in a while. Or as I say, you know our knowledge grows, and we find out that something isn't as is, doesn't isn't as it seems. But you know we we've had this problem being studied, you know, for the last uh, solid twenty five years, and the first that first review annual review took place in nineteen eighty eight, and it's. Every time we do this, the the future predictions get worse. And as as you know, one of my not most favorite um, gov- members of government was Donald Rumsfeld. But he said something that was so spot on 
it's basically not what you don't what you know you don't know that's the real problem. It's what you don't know you don't know that's the real problem. And he said it right, actually more right. articulately than that. But ba- basically, that's the real that's that's the real real issue. So many things have happened, and and we talked a little bit before, and I don't know whether we have time to go into this or not. But the whole ozone layer problem, when when an ozone hole was found over Antarctica, which was a critical problem related to ozone depletion, but this ozone hole was based on chemistry that took place on the sur- on the surface of small ice particles. They're called subvisible cirrus in the in the stratosphere. And nobody knew anything about that chemistry until it was studied, until this was found out and, and, and all this research was done. Uh, people understood, found out based on measurements on that ER2 aircraft that, in fact, ozone was being removed by chlorine because they had the measurements of ozone and chlorine monoxide, which showed the anti-correlation. Ozone went down when chlorine monoxide went up. But they didn't as yet know anything about the chemistry going on in the surface of these particles because it was new chemistry. And and so what's scary about all these things is sort of like all of a sudden learning that we don't understand the the physics of ice melt and the dynamics of ice melting on Antarctic on the Antarctic or any ice sheet. That's and right. that it's turning out is more complicated than anybody realized and it's happening faster than people thought it would. They don't really right. know why and they're trying to do research. Right. That's just these last couple of years. So that's the these are the scary things. But you know what's interesting anyway. Now that we were talking about the ozone, there seemed at that moment in time to be an accept a much greater acceptance of science than than now, I think that there's been a, literally you know the, the the people who talk who uh, uh, protect the coal industry talk about anytime you say global warming they say oh it's a war on coal, but there really yeah. seems to have been a war on science because when the scientists presented their information the world got together and we did do a lot to heal the hole in the ozone layer didn't we. We absolutely did. It's not perfect, but it is because there are other, you know, there are other molecules that we're we're regulating, but maybe not regulating as well. There's actually a black market in in fluorocarbons that that goes on. People take 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 the uh, carbon. I guess it's the CFCs that used to be okay, and they extract them from wherever they were, and they sell them on the black market. There are also other compounds that are that are contributing to ozone uh, depletion, uh, it's getting better. I don't, you know, I haven't really kept up with that field. I don't know what the projections are uh, in terms of the uh, um, reestablishment of what we call the natural amounts of ozone in the stratosphere. Uh, and I don't know, haven't seen lately the, the figures that talk about how the, how the ozone hole has been in the last couple of years. It's improving and they and people do models to to predict based on certain parameters so you know so when it's going it, to get if, completely better so we can assume we can really assume that were we to turn this around and and bring science back into the forefront where for a long time it was i mean you know when i listen to by the way the same people at lunch and dinner uh that you do they all go to a doctor and they don't go to a faith healer they all go to yeah. somebody they want trained in, in the latest science of biology and disease and medicine. Uh, if we push this back, we could reasonably assume with political will and the entire world trying to get on board this, we could do something really well uh, to change the, the uh, current directions that we're on. Well, I think the... the you know, if if one wants to look for silver linings in in what's going on right now, and certainly with the Paris Accord, there are people who suggest that based on who attended this the Paris Paris conference uh, and the the number of entrepreneurs, people involved with clean energy, that and and the the what was presented to them was the idea that governments and and other people who invest in businesses are going are going to say okay this is the time we have to get ahead and start 
investing in, in and developing better, more efficient sources of renewable energy. And, and certainly you get the impression from reading about, you know, people reporting on it that, that there's reason for optimism in this. And that's why the goal is that even though um, that these the, – the, um, I can't think of the word. Basically, whatever goal each country has in terms of reducing the, the carbon dioxide emissions, um, by working in that direction and having a review in five years and having, having reporting, which is completely transparent, that, that basically it will become more and more economically feasible to gra- continue to gradually switch from fossil fuel burning to, to renewable energy. So and creating enormous optimism. numbers of industries that people could right. be trained in, uh, that they could earn a really good living on, living in. Uh, I, I just wanted to, you know, in terms of being optimistic, because I sometimes, and I know you do too, uh, become very, very frightened and pessimistic. By nature, yeah. I tend to be uh, a gloomy person uh, who, who can see the dark side of things before I see the light. I took a trip to Germany last summer. I was there for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Germany has made, and I don't know where the political will comes from. Uh, it is a democracy. It's a functioning democracy. Yes. It has made a, a commitment for zero carbon emissions and zero nuclear uh, 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 creation of electricity. I don't know the date, but they if you go through the country. It's like a place yeah. transformed. For example, uh, you'll see a square mile in a field of solar panels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a village, a farming village, covered with solar panels, producing so much renewable electricity from renewable sunlight that they sell it back to the government, which then right. sells it yeah. to countries across the border, where they have electric cars that they plug in to their own generators, which are creating yeah. electricity. And they, they have built locks on their rivers. They have very, I was on the Rhine. The Rhine is a very fast-moving river. So they've built locks to create hydroelectric. And then, of course, windmills by the tens of thousands. Um, yeah, I mean, and they, it, it, it's, it's transforming the country and the amount of carbon emissions. Their forests are starting to come uh, it, it's really quite incredible. So it's really that, political that will because the science is there, the technology is there, and the people who really want to become millionaires and billionaires investing in renewable energy right. uh, are there. It, it's just like a small cork of individuals, uh, and we have to work to, to, to uh, remove them from office. We have and, and to, to, yeah. Just to... Just, I, I just want to, you know, I was, as I said, I was looking through editorials. I was sort of looking to get a sense of, well, you know, I myself can't, you know, assess the Paris Climate Accord because that's, you know, not my field of expertise, understanding how countries are going to react. But I, but I continue when I look back at this country. And, of course, based on my, my field of expertise, maybe my liberal upbringing, I look at the New York Times for what they have to say. But I decided because, you know, the Wall Street Journal is, is, is certainly a well-respected newspaper. And, you know, I think we're dealing with people that are smart. You know, I might not disagree with them and everything, but I was curious to say, what do they have to say on their editorial page about this accord? And just so we know, we still have a battle in this country. This is the... This was the December 13th editorial in the Wall Street Journal titled Paris Climate of Conformity. And it starts out by saying, I quote, the moment to be wariest of political enthusiasms is precisely when elite opinion is all lined up on one side. We know who the elites are. Uh, That's my parenthetical edition. So it is with the weekend agreement out of Paris on climate policy, which President Obama declared with his familiar modesty, can be a turning point for the world, in quotations, and is, and again quotes, the best chance we have to save the one planet that we've got, close quotes. Forgive us, forgive us for looking through the legacy smoke, but if climate change really does imperil the earth, and we doubt it does, 
Nothing coming out of the gaggle of governments in the United Nations will save it. What will help is human invention and the entrepreneurial spirit. To the extent the Paris Accord increases political control over human and natural resources, it will make the world poorer and technological progress less likely. So that's the opening paragraph. And then there's another, another little piece that I'd like to read. It's another paragraph in the middle. But it says, no less than the supposedly true global warming believers of Europe are also happy about voluntary commitments because Paris liberates them from the binding targets of the Kyoto Protocol of 1997. And, and of course, you know, there's been all this talk about Obama having to push for not having binding agreements because then he'd have to put it before Congress, which he recognizes would never pass pass them based on the right, makeup right. of our Congress. So, so they blame Obama for basically what they themselves are, are causing. It's, so I, I still, when I think about the Wall Street Journal, I mean, they're worried about our economy and how this will affect our economy, but it's, it's, this is a political question that it means we still have a battle a way to on go. our hands in this country. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even yeah. though you you know you look at this and you say globally, and and of course uh, the other question that always comes up is what will China do, which is a very good question. Yeah, uh, it seems that you know the Chinese are are really interested in this problem because it's significantly affecting their population, and their population yes. is just becoming a tad well, more activist than it used to be. You see this picture, these pictures of of Beijing. Yeah. And Singapore right. and 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 the the smog that they have. Right. To, you know, I was in China a couple of years ago, and I was told if it starts to rain, you have to go indoors because yeah. what will be brought down from the sky with the rain will totally ruin your clothing. You'll have to throw it out. It can't be yeah. clean. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, it's it's, it's, uh, it's so. Oh well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're an but interesting species, this, I think. <laughs> Yeah, well, un- unfortunately, maybe we're not evolving appropriately. I don't know. Well, well, the technology has really gone way, way beyond where the average individual's mind can comprehend. Yeah. And in terms of my own life, I'm looking now, I'm looking at my computer. I have to do things on the computer that, that, that I'm overwhelmed with anxiety about accomplishing. I have to bring in an expert. Yeah, and, I and just the, yeah. the daily work with it. And I, I start to think about individuals who are really not college educated, who are not even high school educated, whose jobs have been exported overseas uh, so little children can earn some dollars for food, or they've been roboticized. They've been, they've been you know, done away with technology, which is not mm-hmm. anything that's going to slow down. And I look at those individuals and how are they experiencing the world, and they sure as hell don't understand science, and they're going to believe no. somebody who tells yeah. them that uh, this is all malarkey and the elites are, are uh, trying. But it's going yeah. to be a battle, and maybe we'll win and maybe we won't. But I sort of agree with your premise that we you know, mentioned earlier, which is basically that this this is certainly could very well be a turning point, a major yeah. turning point. And, you know, in, in, we, in five years, we'll have a good sense of which way it goes. Uh, and, you know, how much, how much progress we will make, not only in terms of just the technology and actually the transformation from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but in this country, politically, wh- where will those people be who are now you know, still, you know, you look at our presidential candidates from Florida, for example, who, you know, even even the maybe the least crazy of them all, Jeb Bush, still can't come out and say, oh, uh, this is real and whatever. Yeah, it might be real. I don't think, in, you know, right. don't think mankind's doing that. And Rubio, <clears throat> the, you know, they... They basically you you just don't know what they really think and what their advisors are right. telling them, uh, but it's it's frightening. It, it, it's truly frightening when you have one party, 
which which is the majority party in Congress, that that basically totally denies this whole thing, except for a few few outliers in, the, right. in that party. Right. So we you have a long I way think, to go as a country. I think that maybe uh, you and I should go have some dessert. <laughs> yes. Okay. I think I think I, I think we've we've exhausted the topic in ourselves. Is that about right? I think so, and I think I really want to thank you. Uh, I think we did a good job tonight. I appreciate your asking me. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, And it's been my pleasure to have you on, and maybe we'll do it again. And we have to keep fighting, kiddo. We have to keep fighting. Uh, Absolutely. Great. Okay. Thank you. So good night, and I'll see you around soon. Take care. Yep, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye. So uh, I haven't had anybody call in, but that's okay. This is not my usual night. Uh, this will sit. I'm really very happy with the broadcast. I'm very delighted uh, to have had uh, Elliot, uh, my friend and colleague, uh, on the air. And I'm going to uh, end the broadcast now. Good night and goodbye.